So in a week when we especially celebrate and remember our nation and that God has gifted us with a lot of freedoms, I think it's fitting that on this day we culminate our teaching about the commands of Christ uh, with the last command, reproduce. Reproduce as believers, as followers of Christ, because as a national perspective, it is for which every freedom that has been given to us as a nation is for. I'm going to say that again. In America, every freedom that you have been granted as an American citizen is for the ultimate purpose that you reproduce yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Why do you have freedom of speech? Freedom to bear arms. Right to assemble. Freedom of religion. All those Bill of Rights that we talk about. A judicial system. All the perks of being in this nation, whether it's transportation to education, they all culminate with the end goal of you reproducing yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Do not let this nation and the privileges therein go to waste. It is the purpose for which every human being exists. To give glory to the Father, whether it is in Genesis when God said to first man and woman, multiply, reproduce, Yourself, they being in the image of God, and spread themselves all over the nation of the world. It's still the same. As American citizens, we have more privileges and rights than most. They are given to us so that we will reproduce the image of God and the, and the image of Jesus Christ. Not just in this nation, but all over the nations. And so, I think it's very fitting that we talk about this last command on this day to reproduce ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. We've, we've done now, as we've looked at this, the various commands of Christ, the giving up, the giving in, the giving out. The giving up is our surrender to Jesus Christ, our sacrificing to Jesus Christ, our listening to Jesus. And so that is the giving up to the giving in to the obedience of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord, to the abiding in Jesus, to letting the light of Christ shine in us that we can shine out. And so that gives us to the giving out phase of, well, serving, loving, and as we looked at last week, sharing, which brings us to reproduce. Now, this is kind of tricky in that Reproduction is God's work through us. It's not so much that us just forcing ourselves to reproduce, as is God doing it, working through us. But isn't it interesting as we are in this time of year that we are working in our yards and gardens? Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that weeds reproduce so well and flowers do not? How is it that thorns spread themselves everywhere 
whereas tomatoes and green beans and corn do not. Why is it that we're fighting a battle to produce corn, blueberries, raspberries, and strawberries? It's like an uphill battle, but we don't have to do anything for thorns to come up and weeds. I was contemplating that as I was enjoying my raspberries and blueberries and looking how many blueberries were going to be coming from the little bushes that we've got, only to find yesterday that deer have liked blueberries. They can, I think there's three or four now. It's aggravating. But it, we ask ourselves that, and I think the same reason as that is the same reason why sin so easily is rampant in our life and obedience is so hard. Why it is, sinners multiply left and right. But those who follow Jesus Christ, it's an uphill battle. Think about that as I have it as my goal, as long as I live at my house, to eradicate all sweet gum trees from my yard. And usually it's to the pace of one or two a year that I cut down. And I've, uh, much to my chagrin, go out to where the stumps were and find 15 and the place of the one I cut down. See, nature knows multiplication. I'm, I'm trying to do a subtraction. But nature is multiplying against me. And so what Jesus is calling for and what the, the power is, is as we read a passage that we're going to look at today, it tells us that there can be multiplication of righteousness, multiplications of followers of Jesus Christ. There can be multiplication of love. But it only happens in the atmosphere of those who follow Jesus Christ who are in Christ. Those who are, are sacrificing, surrendering, listening, obeying, abiding, letting the light of Christ shine in. Love, service, sharing, reproduction happens in that atmosphere. It is the atmosphere of which Green Pines is to be committed to, to be a greenhouse for the Great Commission. And so... I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, of which Jesus is uh, commanding those who follow him to go out and reproduce. There is a lot in this passage of which, unfortunately, we will only scratch the surface and and bring out those uh, points that are especially relevant to reproduction, which Jesus is going after here. I think that when you read Luke 10, you must read Luke 9 before that, especially at the beginning of this, because it is in context where at the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus is sending out 12 apostles, and he says, I want you to go out on a mission trip and reproduce. I want you to preach the kingdom of God. I've given you authority, power over all demons to cure diseases and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so these 12 went out doing exactly that with the power of God to heal, cast out demons, and to proclaim the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, it is when uh, this message goes out, Herod gets perplexed. As they come back, they're wanting to report over it, but there's everyone else coming in. 5,000 men are coming, and the women and children, and they're coming to Jesus. It's no wonder that there is this uh, massive invitation that comes to Jesus after this. And Jesus doesn't really have time to go over it with the twelve, and so instead he goes and gives them another lesson on how to feed the crowd and shows them how to do miracles. Uh, and so it, we see this happen one after the other. And then we come to Luke chapter 10, and we see that it's not just 12. Now there's 72. 
Sometimes when we read Luke 9, we think, okay, that's just for the pastors, that's for the missionaries. But when we see 72 here, we realize Jesus is expecting every follower of Jesus to be about this mission of reproduction. 72, there's been some speculation as to what it might be. Why 72? And I don't know why, but some have brought out the thought that it could represent that in Genesis chapter 10, there are 72 nations mentioned and the collection of nations in Genesis 10, and that perhaps maybe this is one for every nation. I don't know, but it certainly would be symbolic of that. Uh, and so in this, we find the words going out to these followers, these 72, and we're going to find some important lessons that apply to us today. And so if this being the word of God, we're going to ask that you stand As we read this, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 5. This passage is extremely instructive to us at Green Pines today. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. You may be seated. As we look at these first five verses, again, there's so much I wish I could just bring to your attention. Uh, I can trust the Holy Spirit as you read this uh, to do that. Uh, But first of all, I want to understand that the mission of Jesus is our prayer. The mission of Jesus is our prayer, and the prayer is our mission. The mission of Jesus is our prayer, and the prayer is our mission. So, as he is considering the area and the environments that he's in, he has plans to go there. He has plans to go where he's sending them. You see that in verse 1. Go, he says, send them on ahead of him. Jesus wants to appear in that town and that city. It's going to be preceded by those who will proclaim him. Let me ask you this question. Would you want to see Jesus in your neighborhood? Would you want his presence to be here in Nightdale, Churchill Downs, uh, in Planters Walk, in Princeton Manor, in Barclay Downs, or in Green Pines, or your neighborhood where you live, in Wake Forest, in the various places, the streets? Would you want his presence there? Jesus is speaking very specifically and thinking of neighborhoods and towns. And he says, before I go there, I send my disciples there to proclaim a message. Understand that if you want Jesus in your neighborhood, in your presence, in your towns, will you be about the mission? The mission of proclaiming his message. And so the mission, first of all, is our prayer. Jesus is saying, okay, 72, I want you to go out, but pray something. He says in verse 2, he makes this declaration, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are 
few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, let me ask you this question. Who is praying this? Who is Jesus asking to pray? Well, the 72. They're the ones harvesting. They're the ones going out and proclaiming a message. And then he says, look, your job is not finished, worker, until you pray for more workers. In this passage, Jesus is identifying what it looks to have complete cycle of discipleship. Have you ever asked yourself, what does it look like to follow Jesus? How do you know you have been discipled? How do you know when job is complete? When those you are working for and teaching become workers and training others. When you are Christ-like, you know that you are working in a Christ-like manner and you're working down discipleship when those you are working and serving are doing the same thing you're doing. When they start praying, God, would you reproduce workers in Churchill Downs? Will you reproduce workers in Planters Walk? Will you reproduce workers in the Green Pine neighborhood, would you reproduce workers in Nightdale and East Raleigh? Will you reproduce workers all over? Because God is aware that Nightdale is ripe for harvest. The harvest in Nightdale is plentiful. In East Raleigh, it is plentiful. And we are those who claim to follow Jesus. And so he's asking us to pray something. To pray. That is part of the mission. Will we pray? Let me just challenge you right here for this passage to have any effect in your life that you will commit to pray for reproducers for workers for trainers for disciples you give them whatever name you want to give them but the fact of the matter is that they're going to call people to follow jesus and they're going to love people to follow jesus and they're going to pray for their reproduction will you do that you see, we often think about addition, kind of like I thought about subtraction of trees. God is wanting us to add, not just add, multiply. You see, we've got a list of people we want to add to the kingdom. But God is saying, no, I don't want you to add, I want you to multiply. I want you to see them not as just a follower of Jesus Christ, see them as a discipler, see them as a trainer, see them as a harvester, pray that they will not just be part of the harvest, but be a harvester. Now that requires something, doesn't it? It requires that we cannot just enjoy the word of God, we must be about this mission. And it starts by praying. Pray for your children. Start right there. Pray for your parents, whichever one you want to be, that they will be a worker, a harvester, a reproducer, a trainer for the kingdom of God. So the mission is our prayer, and the prayer is our mission. Jesus is saying this is going to be done by prayer. Now, why is that? Well, because it involves both. It involves the sovereign work of God and the active obedience of his followers. I think farming is still one of the best analogies to help us understand that. You know, anyone who farms, you can thank God, and you should thank God for the good crop that you may have. But you know well that good crop wouldn't be there unless someone sweated and worked and toiled over that piece of earth. It's amazing. When you look at that things that are growing, 
uh, I can say, okay, I remember planting that. Uh, there would not be any raspberries there except for the fact that we planted these things here. And so there was a very active memory of being involved. But then at the same time, I can look at a, a track record of things I've planted, and they're not there anymore. <laughs> well, what, what's the difference? Well, nature, God's working through nature, did not see fit to reproduce that. Perhaps bad soil, bad environment, uh, bad uh, water or whatever it could be, fertilized too much, too less, any number of variables. Okay? Our deer. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got these that we look at, but we understand that when we have a crop comes up, it's because God and man work together. Same way with reproduction. There will not be a new believer come to faith apart from God's messengers working in prayer and sharing the word. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the only reason you came to faith was God working through someone's prayer and sharing of their faith? So the answer comes ultimately whether we believe that is whether we do that or not. Whether we trust in that or not. To say, God, unless you save my children, then that's not going to happen. So we're going to pray like everything depends on God working through prayer. And then I'm going to train and I'm going to teach like everything depends on me sharing the gospel. Because it is both working together. You see how we're talking here? And so notice as we read the text. He says something very interesting as we, as we go down toward the latter part. Notice verse 21. As he is sharing and teaching these 72, and the 72 have returned, and they're praising God together. Verse 21, he says this. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious Will, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Interesting. Jesus sends these messengers out so that Jesus could go there to these cities, so his presence could be known. So if they don't go there, Jesus doesn't go there. But yet he says, at the same time, They know because God has revealed them. God has revealed the Son to them. So when I witness to someone, and they come to understanding of who Jesus Christ is, would they have gotten there apart from somebody praying and sharing with them? No. So is it because that person prayed and shared with them that they came to faith? No. <laughs> See, there's a little bit of yes and no here. Yes, they could not have known unless someone shared with them, but they could not have understood, they could not have come to terms with it unless God worked through it. Do you understand the difference? So here's the thing. When Jesus sends you out, it is as a, a statement, a check that God is writing that he wants to extend his authority to Churchill. He wants to extend his authority to Planner's Walk. He wants... Raleigh to know the authority of God. He is working in that, and he's going to work through you. But understand, it is a marriage of God's sovereignty and man's obedience, whereby people come to faith. 
both are required. Sometimes we say, you know what, if someone's going to come to faith, God's going to do it, I don't have to do anything. No, that's not how it works. God works through your obedience. He works through you as a vessel. And so the, as we see the mission, the mission is our prayer, and the prayer is our mission. So first of all, start with, God, I want to see trainers. I want to see disciplers in my neighborhood. I want to see disciplers in our areas. I want to see disciplers in our family. Make that our prayer. Pray for that. It's very something concrete, specific. You know whether you're obeying or not. It's measurable. Pray that. But then as we pray it, God puts upon us to do it. And the prayer becomes our mission. The prayer becomes our mission. So what exactly is this mission? Well, the mission is to multiply a life-altering message. The mission is to multiply a life-altering message. It's called proclaiming the kingdom or are teaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. We see both of these uh, phrases in this passage of, of announcing the kingdom of God is at hand or near or proclaiming the gospel. It is something that comes from your lips. But interesting enough, uh, as we read Luke chapter 10, we looked at this not too long ago. Notice verse 25 through 37. It's also loving the stranger. The Good Samaritan story is right here in the same chapter. And so he says, you're going to proclaim this with your mouth. You're going to announce a message, but you're also going to live a message of love. It goes hand in hand. And so that's why it's important for us to surrender. Because sometimes in the surrender and sacrifice, he's going to ask us to serve somebody that's going to require something of us. And that's part of the mission. Proclaiming a life-altering message. To say, this message has changed me. Look, I'm sacrificing because I love you. Just the fact of the matter is people don't understand how our life's been changed until it hits the financial books. Isn't that true? You know whether someone really means business when there's a money value attached to it? That's part of the sacrifice. Let's just know that we've changed and lets the world know that we've changed from the inside out. And so uh, notice verse 7. He says, as we keep on going, he says, you're going to go in a house. You're going to find a, a person of peace. You're going to depend on God. Uh, and so uh, remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for their labor deserves his wages. So the person of peace is someone of influence, influence in the community, and also uh, receptive to you. He says, stay there. Develop relationships with them. When you find someone, a person of peace in your neighborhood, someone's influential. They know everybody, and everybody knows them. Develop relationships with them. And, and so that's just a practical point that he's bringing out in this passage. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter town and they do not receive you, go into, uh, into its street and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. So he says, heal the sick. And chapter 9, it was to... I have power over demonic influence, and is to preach a message, a gospel. Heal the sick, power over demons, and proclaim a message. So I think that that power was fairly unique in that day and time to the apostles. But I would share with you that the Holy Spirit can still give you that authority over specific cases where you are praying for people, and God can work to bring healing to the unbelievers so that they will know the power of God. 
Interesting enough, you see the healing in the New Testament often is for unbelievers to recognize the power of God, not so much for the believer to avoid heaven. You know how our prayer meetings often go? God, so-and-so in the church is sick. Will you heal them? And then we get mad if they don't heal them. Perhaps God wants them to be in heaven. But we see in the New Testament, a lot of times the power of prayer is used for unbelievers so that they would know the power of God. Interesting enough, Paul even talks about one of his comrades who's sick and, and had to leave the work. Paul was the one that people would want to touch his hanky because power would work through that. But it didn't work for his comrade in ministry. I just want to present that the Holy Spirit may direct that. He uniquely did it in this day and time in Luke chapter 10. But you could take still some of the message of that to say, we want to provide healing for our community. We want to provide healing for individuals to find how our social fabric is frayed and messed up in Nightdale and East Raleigh and let God's people be in the middle of that to bring healing of the gospel there. I think that's why Hodge Roads Elementary is probably important for us. Not just because it's on our road, I think that was just to get our attention, but there are some things that are frayed in that school. And it's a way for us to minister to people who are hurting and frayed and they, they're not able to read or having, don't have the tools to read. We can be a part to provide healing there. I think that's just one of the ways that Luke 10 applies to us today. Find how the society is frayed and messed up in your community. And maybe God wants to inject you right in the middle of all that provide healing to proclaim a message the word gospel is really kind of an announcement in fact um, we've come across there's a, a document an ancient document uh, that talks about uh, the gospel uh, being used uh, in regards to caesar augustus it's, it's a document in greek that starts like this this is the beginning of the gospel of caesar augustus what you see gospel meant Good news. It was an announcement of someone that stepped up in authority. It's a declaration that someone's ascended to the throne, that there is a victory. And so that word gospel is used to, to uh, identify that. Jesus is saying that we're calling an announcement about the authority of Jesus Christ. It's to be reproduced. We were at a um, piano recital for my daughter uh, this past weekend. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a cool thing to be able to see and see all the hard work being uh, done and applauded, and uh, you know that there's a, a part of me that's always wanting to embarrass folks around me, especially regarding his family, and so I just kind of made the threat and mentioned my dad who was there with me. I said, you know, dad, we can perhaps start a wave right here at the piano recital, and uh, wouldn't that be kind of neat, you know, just just start off on one end, and everybody just kind of go like that, and you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's the idea, though, when you see the wave, it's like, it's like everyone's applauding something, and it's contagious. And it's a, a reproduction of announcing the glory of a person or team, isn't it? Isn't it? It's contagious. That's what the gospel is to be among the community. That, that is a wave for us to say, lift up the name of Jesus. Let me share with you what Jesus has done in my life. Let me proclaim him as my Savior. And that's why a church is important. So that when someone is doing that and exalting Jesus, it gets, gets contagious. So it encourages someone else to do the same. 
one of my prayers this morning is that we could see grace at work in someone's life and that it would reproduce grace, more grace in our life. That we can see someone celebrating, rejoicing in Jesus, that it would produce the same in our life. We just flat out need that. We need someone to do the Jesus wave in our life. Just proclaim the message of what Jesus has done. And so that is the idea here is to multiply a life-altering message. You see, Jesus calls these 72 to radically follow him. He's calling us to radically follow him so that he can radically send us out into a world no longer to focus on our needs, but the needs of others. He he wants us to live radically for other people in a way we've never done before. That's why the Good Samaritan story follows right after this in this chapter. For their needs. He wants us to be healing agents. And that's going to require surrender and sacrifice on our part. You see, we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. We are no longer trying to invent and manufacture and devise reasons to find some self-worth in our life. Don't you know that most of our life is doing that? manufacture, devise, invent, and strive some reasons for self-worth and significance? Jesus said, I've provided that for you. Take your resources now and serve others. One of the clearest historical examples of the idea of the gospel is uh, from 490 B.C., the Battle of Marathon. It was a an issue of the Persians invading the Greece, and everyone thought the Persians were going to wipe out uh, Greece and the Athenian army. And so they went out to meet on the plains of Marathon. But, much to everyone's surprise, the Persians did not win. The Athenian army survived and broke the Persian army. And so, when the news came out, or when they realized that, they, they knew they needed to proclaim and announce this gospel this announcement of good news and so if word did not get back panic would ensue in the streets there would be looting and plundering and trampling on one another out of fear and so one single runner ran the way back from marathon to athens can you guess how far 22 miles all right and a half and The story goes that when he got there, all he was able to say was rejoice, we've triumphed, and then fell dead. See, that's kind of the the heartbeat of what the gospel is. It's to say, rejoice, there is a triumph. All this clamoring for self-worth and being right is done. It's taken care of. We don't follow the same path that all the world is following. We have a different drummer. Announce it. Proclaim it. Share it in how it comes out in the individual life of who you are. You see, I think about Ephesians chapter 2.10. It says, For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. You are God's workmanship. Created to do certain good deeds. You see, you're not just sent out in general 
to the world. But there are particular things, particular people, particular situations that God has called you to help and be a healer in. He has shaped you to be an instrument of healing and proclaiming God's news. And the fact that you live here tells me that God is customizing you to be a a healer and a proclaimer where you live. Sometimes we think, you know, that's not my mess. It's going to be too much of a problem for me to get, get in the middle of that. Friends, God has given you his check. He says, I'm going to meet your needs. Whatever mess that you get in, he's going to help you through. Now, here's the thing, though, because I'm calling us to share the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, and I think Jesus is asking us to say, you know, talk to that person and say that you have a Savior. Tell that person about Jesus Christ. Tell them how you've sinned and God asked, has forgiven you of your sin. Tell him what it is to, to have Jesus as your Savior. And there's all kinds of reasons that we start saying, you know what, if I do that, that's going to be a problem. And the world will gladly give you support in that. You see, one of the things that we'll hear is, you know what, Especially in, on the 4th of July weekend, you've got freedom of religion. You have freedom of worship, whatever you want. I'm glad you worship Jesus. But don't push your view on me. Right? You feel it? You feel, you feel that. You don't just have it here. You, you feel it. And if you have the audacity to be so arrogant in your thoughts as to proclaim Jesus as the Savior of the Lord, you deserve any def- ridicule that comes your way. You will be regarded as evil, narrow-minded. What right do we have to impose your worldview on anyone else? But stop for just a second, though. Think about what's being said. When someone says to you, stop proclaiming Jesus as something that we all need to hear. They're asking you to believe something different about Jesus. See, Jesus has called us not to just a prophet that gives advice. He's called us to say, this is God in flesh who has proclaimed the only news of salvation that there is for your sin. It is as to say, he is the cure for something much worse than cancer. He's asking us to believe that. And so when, when someone says, don't proclaim that, he's asking us, here she's asking us to believe something less about Jesus. And guess what he or she is doing at that point? They are imposing their worldview on you. They are doing the very thing they're asking you not to do. You see, the fact of the matter is, everybody's imposing a worldview. We can't go through life saying, don't impose your worldview on me. By me saying that, I'm imposing my worldview on you. And the question simply is, which worldview are we going to proclaim? Which one are we going to announce and and share? Jesus is saying, I'm God in flesh. It is a worldview worth declaring. And so, yeah, You're going to go, and you're going to be as a lamb among wolves. Interesting enough, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. And then he describes this harvest field as lambs in the midst of wolves. Does that sound like a good harvest to you? (laughs) 
That's what he says, though. A good harvest is one where lambs go out among wolves. You will be eaten, devoured, ridiculed, persecuted, slandered, made fun of, laughed at, marginalized. It's okay. You will be saved for eternity. Better to endure that than to be the ones who are wolves persecuting others. Christian faith has taken some nasty turns in history. When we ever got to the point of inquisition, where we are the ones persecuting others, we are never called to be the wolves. We're always called to be the lambs. We're always lambs led to slaughter. And Jesus said, it's okay because there's eternity. It's okay for us to have lives called short, to be marginalized. Because God is working in the midst of that for something eternal. You see, his kingdom is not one of an army, of political power. It's one of more eternal nature. And so let the political powers come at, at us at us, because we're living for something more. So, something else will comp- happen, though. Some people say, you know what? All right, sure. I will grant it you have the right to impose your Christian faith on me because I'm trying to do the same. I don't like it. I don't like trying to be uh, realizing that I'm as narrow-minded as you. I don't like that. But, You have to recognize that there are many people who have hurt others because of their Christian faith. Made them manipulated the system and people for their own advantage. I've been reading about that, seeing how that's taken place in in Iraq and other places. And and, and it's true that, that people will do all measure of destructive things in the name of God. And Islam is not the only one. The Christian faith has been as guilty in various ways. So Jesus speaks to something here, and, and, and I think it's a good balance in helping us understand. Because as he sees the victory, as the 72 come back, and they are rejoicing the things they've done. Notice in verse 72, how they return with joy. Jesus says something, a corrective, to help them understand. And, that, and this is something what I want you to understand. The message of the gospel is our motive. The message of the gospel is our motive. It is the reason why we do what we do. And so he explains it this way as we read verse 72. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, that would be pretty uh, cool, wouldn't it? You see all kind of demonic activity going on. And you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. And you see healings happen. That's powerful. But notice what he says. Verse 18. Jesus speaks only like Jesus could speak, and no prophet could. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Who speaks like that? The only one who's seen Satan in heaven to begin with. The one who's outside of time. He said, I saw Satan fall down. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's pretty impressive. That's like Achilles, you know, without an Achilles heel. Wow. So this is the power. And listen, church, 
For us to exercise authority in such spiritual realms, we have to be under authority. You see Satan having his way in your life, then it's probably because of instruction number one, you're not surrendering. You have to be under the authority of Jesus to know the authority of Jesus in your life. He says, given that, but that's not why we rejoice. He says, verse, nevertheless, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That's not your motivation. That's not what gives you identity. That's not what sets you apart. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, here's the thing that we sometimes get into. We start thinking that we are better Christians because more people have become disciples. We think that we are a better church because there are more disciples coming out. We think that we are a better church because there's more people sent out. That's the wrong motivation. We've left the first love of understanding what Jesus has done for us. He says, our joy and what we never get over is the fact that our name has been written past tense, in the Lamb's Book of Life, that we are in the kingdom of God. I had a dream last night, you know, one of these dreams that uh, some of you probably had similar. Um, Mine's unique as a pastor. I was in India, and I was uh, not prepared to be there. And I was there with Finney. Some of you, many, many of you remember Finney. And somehow we were uh, brought before some council of churches of India. And all the leaders were there. And Finney, uh, my friend, was trying to make an appeal for us doing this evangelistic crusade in India. And uh, I was the only speaker there, the only American that was there with him. And so he uh, directed attention to me, of which I was horrified to find that the spotlight went around and spotlighted right on me. And as I looked down on myself, I realized that I just had one of those white undershirt tank tops. You know, the, the, the slang wife beater is what the slang is for that. And I just had shorts on, and, and the spotlight was on me. And all these people in suits were looking at me, trying to judge whether or not they should let me be a part of this evangelistic crusade. And strangely enough, after this evaluation, they said no. <laughs> and I just woke up. You know, this is somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30. I woke up and was just like, oh. And, and I had a tank top on. And I was just like, oh, no. You know, it's just, you know those dreams? Where it's just like you, you were being measured and you found wanting. What Jesus is saying, you and your tank top have already been written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's past tense. I'm not found wanting. I'm not found lacking. Jesus has covered the lack. His name was blotted out. When he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? His name was blotted out. And he says, you never get over that. And if something else becomes a greater joy, then you have lost the passion of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And that's why I was saying, saying that sharing the gospel is not just because you love people. It's not primarily about that because a lot of times we don't. It's, it's not just because if they die, they're going to go to hell. Because a lot of times, you know what? We're so cold-hearted that doesn't face us. What it comes down to is that it's about Jesus. And really only about Jesus. That what he has done for us and is doing for us changes who we are fundamentally. And so I don't 
look out anymore to see how many trophy points I can get by how many people that's been impacted. Because what's going to happen when those people aren't there? When the people start turning away from you and your message, when you no longer are found likable, what do you do then when people don't like you anymore and it, it, will unma- it will unravel who you are and you will find yourself down manipulative and coercive methods to try to get them back in your court because yourself is at stake. And we dress it up, call it church and religion and the gospel and missions. But if the missions ever leaves the heart of the gospel, then it's a mission that's no longer proclaiming Jesus, but proclaiming yourself, and you've just dressed it up as Jesus. The message of the gospel is our motive. You see, when it's all said and done, how do you know when you're a follower of Christ and you're being and have been discipled. You're obeying. You're sacrificing. You're surrender. You're listening. You're submitting to the light of Jesus Christ. You're abiding in His joy. You get that. You remember, abide in His joy. Abide in His love. Abide in Christ. Comes your motive. Your motive for serving people. Motive for sharing with others your motive for love and god comes in that environment and reproduces so when we don't see reproduction in our life in our church we check it ask are we abiding in jesus are we surrendering are we obeying are we listening fruit will come it's how you know you're a disciple And the fruit will look like someone else who loves Jesus because of how Jesus loved them to the point where they're declaring the message and making other disciples. You get that? This is counter to what we hear sometimes in church because a lot of times it's just, we want to see people join the church. That's great. But it's not the end. It's not the end. It is when people join, do they make disciples? It doesn't really matter what church they go to as long as it's about Jesus Christ and his word. Are they following him? Are you following him? Have you lost what it's all about? The joy of the fact that your name's written down in heaven. Let's pray.